If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 739. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one or 25 classes there. Of course, you got the coupon code right now, Black Friday 2022. 30% off all classes, including my bundles at McClanahan Academy. They make great gifts for yourself or for someone else. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on the support tab, or you can go to anchor.fm. You can subscribe there or click on the heart button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. All those are great ways to support the show financially. You can throw a few pennies my way. Also, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo on all kinds of cool stuff. Go to amazon.com. You can purchase one of my books there. All those things make great gifts for that Brian McClanahan show fan in your life. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like it, give it that five-star review. Leave a text review at Apple Podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment. Make sure the video plays all the way through so it bumps the algorithm. All those things help promote the show. And as always, send me those show requests. I want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day. This is a listener-generated episode. This was sent to me, uh, and it's absolutely hilarious. Now, I say it's hilarious. It's for a number of reasons. First and foremost, this shows you how stupid the Academy really is. And I mean that because this person that wrote this article, which is in the LA Times, by the way, uses a source to buttress their claims that actually refutes their claims. You can't make this up. The source they use actually works against the argument they make, which is absolutely hilarious. It's also funny because the person writing this particular essay, a work of history, is not even a historian. You find that a lot. But this particular person is a, a professor of psychology. Now, anyone that has taught at the college or university level, and this is not to disparage people that made, well, not to disparage psychologists, I'll say that. But anyone that's taught at that level knows that generally the psychology majors are the people that can't do anything else. And they get those majors, and that's what they get. I mean, it's, it's one of the weakest majors you'll find at a college or university. It's what people go into when they can't hack it in any other field, and that's what they've got left. So I'll just leave it there. So this person is a professor of psychology, and they wrote this, uh, this uh, essay for the Los Angeles Times, this op-ed, based on some of their own research, which, of course, is absolutely ridiculously stupid. Now, his name is Nick Buttrick. You can't make this up. Nick Buttrick. Even that. I mean, <laughs> Buttrick. Um, <laughs> his research fits his name. right? So 
uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into that because that's the funniest part of the whole essay. When I was going through this and I was looking at where he's using his evidence and everything else, and of course I have my critiques of what he's saying here, it, it doesn't logically make any sense. And it's based on nothingness. But regardless, one of the links he gives you, this is hilarious, one of the links he gives you refutes his entire argument. Okay? So let's get into this. The op-ed is... Why former slave states became the base of U.S. gun culture. So former slave states are the base of U.S. gun culture. It's from the Los Angeles Times. He begins by saying, There are a lot of guns in America. This nation has collectively more civilian-owned guns than we have citizens. Unlike the rest of the developed world, firearmed ownership in America is broadly held, with an estimated 40% of American households owning at least one gun. And unlike the rest of the world, gun-owning Americans tend to think of their weapons not as something dangerous, but as something that keeps them and their families safe. So he's saying, look, this is a misconception. These things don't help you at all. They don't keep you safe. They're actually dangerous to you and your family. Two-thirds of American gun owners say that they own their gun, at least in part, for protection. This despite data showing having a gun in the house doubles the likelihood that someone in the household will die by homicide, triples the likelihood that someone in the household will die by suicide, and provides little or no defense against assault or property loss. Okay, that one's really funny. Uh, we know that it does. We know that it provides defense against assault all the time. Uh, but regardless, he's saying that the data doesn't support this, even though there's been plenty of studies to show that this is actually the case. So that part of it is funny. But when he gets in the history, this is where it gets really hilarious and absolutely stupid, and it shows you why Nick Buttrick is a professor of psychology and not a historian and really shouldn't be publishing anything whatsoever. So he says, where does this unique set of beliefs about the protective power of a gun come from? Americans, he says, have not always felt this way. Historians suggest that for a large portion of this country's existence, firearms were more often thought of as tools for hunting and pest control with a purpose that was not primarily to keep a household safe. Now, this is the funniest part. So he has a link here to a book review at, the, uh, at JSTOR, right, which is a, a clearinghouse of journal articles and uh, academic pieces. And so uh, academic journal articles, book reviews. So this is a book review by James Lindgren in the Yale Law Journal from 2002 for the book Arming America, which received all kinds of awards, unfortunately, because it's one of those books that should never have gotten past any press whatsoever. He cites the book review as evidence that his position is correct. He says historians believe this. Now, if you read the review, you'll find that when the book was published, there were some historians who believed it. But then you find this very interesting, quote, paragraph within the first couple of pages of the book that complete, or this article that completely destroys the book. Quote, since the book's publication, scholars who have checked the book's claims against its sources have under uncovered, I'm sorry, an almost unprecedented number of discrepancies, errors, and omissions. When those are taken into account, a markedly different picture of colonial America emerges. Household gun ownership in early America was more widespread than today, and a much poorer world. <laughs> so, Butkin says that 
people didn't have guns, that they were just ornaments for pest control and uh, these kind of things. The entire book, because it's, it's based on this book by uh, this book, Arming America, which is an awful book, but it's ba- his argument is based on that, which the journal article that he cites completely refutes what he says. You can't make up this kind of stupid. This is academics for you, though. This is a psychology professor who needed some help and research, obviously. You cannot make up this kind of stupid. But yet the Los Angeles Times publishes this thing, and somehow this is considered to be a great work, and of course he's promoting his own work here, which is just as bad. So Butkin can tell me, look, he goes forward with this. Guns, when advertised, were often displayed in the same pages as household goods, such as farm implements, with similar language promoting both. So he's saying, uh, this is the problem. Um, you know, guns were displayed for, for uh, like, farm implements. Uh, they were advertised a lot, by the way. Into the 20th century, you could buy a Thompson machine. You could buy a howitzer online. I've talked about this before. You could buy Thompson machine guns, howitzers. You could buy anything you wanted. Military surplus was all over the place. And it wasn't just for keeping uh, you safe from pests. But hunting, of course, was something that was you know quite common. Uh, but firearm ownership was tremendous. And I'll say this. In the colonial period into the 19th century, and this is the book, the, the claim the, books make, the book makes, that people didn't have firearms. It was actually required by law. Congress required it by law that you have a firearm with a certain amount of ammunition and powder. So if Americans didn't have firearms and they looked at them just for pest control, that's a pretty interesting claim considering that Congress itself required the Militia Acts for people to have firearms. And they had them. And like yeah, there, there were armories. You had those things too. But generally Americans had firearms and a lot of them. In fact, even slaves had firearms. This is something that nobody really wants to talk about, but as they've done archaeological work in slave areas with slave cabins, they found firearms. So his whole claim is that people uh, feared, this is is where it gets really funny, the reason that we have firearms coming out of the South is because white Southerners feared slaves would have firearms, and this is why they had more firearms, because they were against slaves and slave insurrection. Now, certainly there was a there was uh, people that worried about this. There's no doubt about it. They worried about abolitionist literature and incendiary language and all these kind of things. But you had firearms all over the United States. It wasn't just in slaveholding areas. So his entire argument is blown up with the one link he provides from the beginning. That actually, firearm ownership across the United States was very widespread even in the colonial and early 19th century. There are a lot of guns. In fact... When you look at the New England Immigrant Aid Society, this is why they called them Beecher's Bibles. He's shipping guns into Kansas. These people had guns all over the place. Yeah, I mean, everyone had guns. This was something that everyone did. This is not new. But of course, according to Buttrick, this is new. It wasn't until the Civil War that we had any guns. It's only relatively recently, he says, that Americans came to widely believe that guns keep a person safe and secure. It's only relatively recently. Nobody really thought about that at all. 
relatively. My research with Jessica Mazin, which of course is garbage, suggests that the crystallization and propagation of these beliefs happened largely in the former slave states in the aftermath of the Civil War. It's only because they were worried about former slaves, you see. That was the only reason we had guns. Because before that, there were no guns. Guns only came around after the Civil War. Well, that's really interesting because when Southerners and Northerners marched off to war in militia units, they were generally bringing their own firearms in the 19th century, in the 1860s. Now, of course, when they joined the Union Army, they were given firearms, uh, but they all had them, you see. And they could bring their own if they were in a militia unit. And they signed up in militia units. And yes, they were trying to secure firearms. You saw this all over the place, trying to get firearms from the government because they wanted regulation firearms. They wanted the most recent technology. But you had people all over the place in, in private ownership of these things. Cannons, rifles. It was all over. North and South. This argument is ridiculously stupid. The South was a very dangerous place, he said, after the war. More than half a million men with their weapons, which, by the way, they had before the war, returned to what rapidly became one of the most heavily armed societies in the world and one of the most violent. With their weapons that they had before the war. The murder rate in the South during the 1870s was an estimated 18 times higher than New England, largely driven by white men killing each other. Well, why is that Butkin, or Butrick, whatever your name is, Butrick? Why is that Butrick? Well, gee, because you had complete political, economic, and social turmoil in the South. You didn't have that in New England. Of course it wasn't as high as in New England. New England wasn't going through any radical transformations of its economy, of its society, of its political culture. Nothing was changing in New England, so why would you have that kind of uh, violence. And he's right about it was mostly white men killing each other, and this was generally Southerners killing ca uh, carpetbaggers and scalawags, is what they called them, people that were in favor of Reconstruction. This is those who weren't, they were killing them. They didn't take their violence out on former slaves, they took it out on other white people who they saw as threats. That was generally the position of Southerners after the war. So he's correct about that. I mean, this most of the violence was in the South was white-on-white white violence. Again, why? Well, because you have these people that have moved into the South. They're advocating complete restructuring of Southern society, the economy, the political world. And the Southerners who had lived there want them out. Or Southerners who were against them wanted them out. And you've got people that just went through a war, so they're going to be uh, certainly fine with taking it out violently. The post-war period was shaped by, and so you, you look at his link here, was shaped by, and uh, who does he use? Um, Black Reconstruction in America. Of course, that, that particular book uh, is W.B. Du Bois. So he's using Du Bois and then Eric Foner as the basis for his arguments about Reconstruction. The post-war period was shaped by the Reconstruction Administration's efforts to expand political power to those who had been emancipated and the backlash against this attempt. So again, it's 
Foner and Du Bois. And, and Foner basically is just Du Bois light. I mean, that's all Foner is. He just took Foner and just changed it a little bit, and he became very famous off of this. But we know there's lots of other st- of, uh, studies of Reconstruction besides these. But this is where Butrick gets all of his information from. Elite white Southerners considered their empowerment of the previously enslaved population an existential threat and worked to repress black political power as completely as possible. But wait a second. I thought you just said they were killing each other. Um, and they were killing white people, but no, they're suppressing black people now. And this doesn't even take into account the Union Leagues, which were white people that were arming black people to go burn down barns and do all kinds of things against pro against anti-Republican white people, right? I mean, so you're not taking all that into account. This This piece is ridiculously stupid. As part of that project, white Southern leaders explicitly anchored their protection of their way of life in the private ownership of firearms, arguing that guns protected white people from an illegitimate government unwilling to keep them safe. The huge supply of firearms from the war made this argument salient. You had military occupation. (laughs) You had soldiers stationed in the South. Was that government really keeping them safe? Uh, the famous example of John Wesley Hardin, who, of course, is a bad guy. But the reason he became an outlaw, and he writes about it, is because he murdered a black man in a fight. Killed him in a fight, so it wasn't really murder. It was self-defense in his mind, because he was attacked. But he knew he wouldn't get a fair trial. That was the argument, and so he left. And he went out west, and he became a pretty bad dude out west. But it was all it all started because of... Violence perpetuated on him by someone else. He defended himself, killed the guy, and then he wouldn't get a fair trial. At least that's what was argued, and so he goes out west. So was the government keeping them safe? Does the government keep anybody safe? Does the gov- does the, did the police keep people from barging into your home? No. They never do that. So, I mean, this is the, this is the issue with this particular piece. It's based on stupid, worn-out, worthless arguments. So he says, using data from the 1860 census, nationally representative survey data for more than 3.5 million Americans and records of every death in the U.S. from 1996 to 2016, we found that the higher the rate of enslavement in a county in 1860, i.e. where nascent black political power was more threatening to post-Civil War white elites, the higher the rate of gun ownership today. These are also the counties where everyday feelings of danger among citizens best predict rates of gun ownership. Hmm, that's interesting. Do you think this is because uh, of the culture of the area, which goes back to the 17th century? Again, the book that he cites that says that people didn't own guns, it has been completely ripped apart, torn to shreds, even by academic historians who have said, yeah, the book, the conclusions of the book are all bogus. There's nothing in here that even makes sense. So he's basing it on that and then saying, well, wait, we looked at 1860 census. And then we looked at a nationally representative survey from more than three and a half million Americans today. And then every death from 1996 to 2016. And we found that where you had more enslavement, you have more gun ownership, gun deaths. Now, is he he taking into account um, if these areas was race? Is race involved in that? Because we know that black Americans commit more crimes against other black Americans than white Americans against black Americans. We know that's the case. We know that murder rates, all these, and and assault with firearms is much higher in these areas. So is he taking that into account? Probably not. 
Probably not at all. It's just racism, you see. In other words, counties with a historical prevalence of slavery had both the most guns and the tightest link between guns and feelings of safety. These are the places where contemporary American gun culture took root. It has nothing to do with the West or anything like that. Or the fact that even when you look at the proposed amendments for the U.S. Constitution out of Pennsylvania, one of the things was to have a Second Amendment so people could defend themselves that was actually argued in Pennsylvania. A natural right of self-defense is what they looked at it like. I mean, the Quakers were more into natural rights and, uh, than, than, uh, and reciprocal rights than just about anyone else. So it has nothing to do with that. Nah. It's just about slavery. The piece is historically ignorant. Buttrick is historically ignorant. Buttrick is a dope. Buttrick should stick to psychology and not even, I don't even know if she should do that. Maybe, I don't know, get out of doing that and uh, maybe she should sell insurance or something. That, that would be, uh, you know, uh, that would be a slap to insurance salesmen. I don't know. Maybe you should do something else. I, I can't even think of anything. Work at a fast food joint. Even when we include other possible determinations of gun ownership, such as crime rates, police spending, population density, unemployment rates, income, racial segregation, education levels, state gun laws, and political voting patterns, we still found that historical rates of slavery predict gun ownership. It was about as good a predictor as the percentage of the country voting for Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. So, hey, because of slavery, Donald Trump won. Do you see this? What he's making the common fallacy is correlation equals causation. Because these areas are more likely to vote for Trump or to have these... That's because of slavery. This is all that it is. Doesn't take into account culture. Doesn't take into account long-standing traditions. Doesn't take into account anything. It's just about slavery. You can't get much more stupid than butt Rick. But, I mean, that's why I had to talk about this. Of course, gun ownership is prevalent outside the former slaveholding states as well, and similarly coupled with the notion that guns keep powerful households safe. So how did these beliefs migrate out of the South? We found that they piggybacked on the mobility that America has historically been known for. Americans tend to move quite a lot, and as they move, they bring their cultures with them. We can see the effects of these moves in the patterns of Facebook friendships around the country. <laughs> yeah, Facebook. It's a clear indicator. The county, countries uh, outside the South that are the most socially tied to countries, counties I'm sorry, with high rates of historical enslavement have higher rates of gun ownership. These counties also have a stronger link between people feeling unsafe and people owning guns. Ideas about protective gun ownership are transmitted socially and dispersed through the country along with the population. So Facebook is a clear indicator. As someone moves, then we know because of Facebook. I mean, let that sink in for a second. This is how these dopey dopes are going out and starting to do research now. We've analyzed Facebook, and uh, after analyzing Facebook, we've determined that people move. And when they move, they bring the slavery with them. And because they bring the slavery with them, they bring the guns with them. Because it's all about being afraid of slaves. Uh, I mean, look, some of these areas are high crime areas. Why? We, that question's not asked. <laughs> um, why, why are these areas high crime areas? Uh, anyways, something as complex as America's relationship with guns cannot be boiled down to just one cause, but, th but they do here. They just did it. Something as complex as America's relationship cannot be boiled down to just one cause. They just did. They said it's all about slavery. So he contradicts himself in the piece. 
More contemporary factors, such as the decline of American hunting culture and the pivot by gun manufacturers from advertising hunting rifles to promoting handguns and assault rifles, changes in, changes in federal and state gun laws and political polarization around gun ownership also play a major part. So we can't just boil it down to one thing, but we do. Nevertheless, the efforts by white Southerners to reclaim power in the aftermath of the Civil War was the context for the development of the idea that guns are needed for personal protection. That, that Nobody thought about that beforehand. I mean, we didn't have Patrick Henry essentially stand up and say this in 1775. No, no, we didn't have that. Um, we didn't have, again, like I mentioned, militia law. We didn't have proposals for a Second Amendment based on the idea that guns keep you safe. Because those things were mentioned. And not just in the South, but also in the North. How did those guys at Lexington get their firearms? Did they get them from the armory? Or did they just have them? The Minutemen were armed. How? From the armory? Well, they had weapons. How did they have those weapons? Obviously, because slave owners gave them to them if you're listening to Buttrick. This conceptual frame is in evidence uh, in the geographic distribution of firearms and beliefs about them today, and it may help explain how Americans think about guns in this country, who guns are for, and who they are used against. Nick Buttrick is an assistant professor of stupidity at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That's his job. Assistant professor of stupidity. He's non-tenured, this, he hopes, will get him some tenure somewhere. He's got a piece in the New York, I'm um, sorry, LA Times now. He's got this little thing he's done. I don't know if that'll get him tenure or not. It shouldn't. This thing shouldn't make it anywhere. We know, though, that doesn't matter. The Academy will push through this stuff, even if it's completely bogus and stupid. They'll do it anyways. But regardless, uh, this piece was sent to me as something of, you know, take a look at this. Yeah, uh, take a look at this. It's completely idiotic. He has a source that refutes everything he just said. And yet, somehow, the LA Times publishes it. Well, we know why. It doesn't matter about accuracy or even being uh, you know, remotely correct about anything. Uh, it only matters if you have the correct political opinion. Okay. Thanks for sending this to me. Great little thing to show the stupidity of, of modern academics. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 